chapter 9. This morning, after 16 months spent mostly in Exodus 1 through 15, but also elsewhere, uh, we return to this this great letter. Uh, We certainly could have continued going in our series, God of Glory. Uh, We could have done that for a long time. I had enough sermons outlined to take us into May uh, in that series. Um, But for several reasons, I decided not to continue going with that series. Um, And here's why. Uh, First, though the God of Glory series was thoroughly biblical, it was more of a topical series, uh, theology series, rather than an expository series. And I don't want to continue preaching topical sermons till till May. I, I always want the main pattern of my preaching to be verse by verse through books of the Bible. And I hope that's what you want as well. I really believe that verse-by-verse preaching is the best way to keep us from error. Uh, It's the best way to make sure we're covering all that the Bible has for us, even those passages that are difficult or that we might otherwise avoid. Uh, Verse-by-verse preaching helps us keep verses in context, which is so important to understanding God's truth rightly. Uh, Verse-by-verse preaching helps us to truly understand how one passage relates to the next, so that we get the full warp and woof of, of what our God is saying to us. And then second, I decided to stop where we were in the God of Glory series, at least for now, because what we had covered in the sermons we had preached laid a very good foundation for us, I hope, in, in coming to Romans 9 through 11. Uh, we've been laying a foundation for Romans 9 through 11 for a long time. We laid that foundation over several years as we studied Romans 1 through 8. And we continued laying that foundation as we studied Exodus 1 through 15. It's no accident that we chose to go to Exodus 1 through 15 before coming to Romans 9 through 11. The, the God of sovereign salvation who hardens the heart of Pharaoh and uh, rescues his chosen people out of Egypt. That's the God we're going to encounter in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then especially our recent sermons explaining the God-centeredness of God and how God does all that he does for his own glory and how God has infinite joy in himself and how he brings others into that joy. All of that was preparing us for the terrain ahead as we come to Romans Chapter 9. Now perhaps it would be helpful for me to remind us just how wonderful the book of Romans is. And so I'm going to do that by quoting again for you what some of the great Christians of the past have said about the book of Romans. Martin Luther said, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but that he should occupy himself with it daily as the daily bread of the soul. He said of Romans, it can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. William Tyndale said, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. It is a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. Calvin said, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. 
The Puritan Thomas Drack said, Romans is the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. And Swiss theologian Frederick Godet said, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. Now, wait a minute, Justin. We get Romans is a great book. It's a, it's a fantastic book of the Bible. But we've already studied Romans chapters 1 through 8. Isn't that where all the good stuff is? Didn't we already climb the Mount Everest of the Bible in Romans 3, 21 through 26? Didn't we already feel the wonder of justification by faith alone as we studied Romans 4 and Romans 5? Didn't we already go deep into sanctification and growing up as a Christian in Romans 6 and 7? And remember what we studied last in Romans, the great eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just and surely, we cannot go any higher. We cannot read anything more wonderful than Romans 8. So as we now come to the second half of Romans... Isn't it all downhill from here? I hope that's not how you're thinking. (laughs) It's not, I promise. Ahead of us in Romans are some of the most wonderful passages in the entire Bible. The book of Romans, like all of the Bible, is glory upon glory. Right ahead of us, immediately in front of us, is the wrecking ball of Romans 9. How many people have had their world turned upside down because of what God did to them through Romans 9? Romans 9 is a tour de force. It it takes no prisoners. It comes full blast declaring the sovereign freedom of God and pummeling our human pride into dust. Romans 9 is a hurricane. And honestly, some people don't make it through. Some people study Romans 9 and and they turn away from God because they can't handle it. But if you make it through the hurricane of Romans 9, you come out greatly changed. It is a powerful chapter. And then there's Romans 10. And how sweet is the presentation of the gospel in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10. How many people have found themselves drawn to the work of missions and have entered into the mission field because of Romans 10? How many church have heard the bells ringing for the cause of reaching the lost through Romans 10? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then Romans 11. And perhaps in that chapter more than any other in the entire Bible, God makes to us 
God makes clear to us his plan of how he is building the church of Christ. How you have Jewish people and you have Gentile people. And, and we, we find in Romans 11 God's way of bringing these people together into one eternal kingdom of the redeemed. And the glory of Romans 11 is so great that when you get to the end of that chapter, we find the Apostle Paul suddenly crying out, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. He just breaks out in worship because of the glory of what he's been saying. And of course, Romans 12 through 16 are full of glory too, but Romans 9 through 11 is where we'll be in the coming weeks. And so I pray that I will be able to faithfully show you the feast of God's truth that's here, and I hope that you will be praying that God will help you to see and to savor and to sense the glory of these three amazing chapters. Okay, are you ready? Romans 9, let's look at the first five verses. The first five verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. As you're reading the book of Romans, and you get to Romans 9, 1 through 5, you might say, what in the world, Paul? How, (coughs) excuse me, How do you go from Romans 8? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It feels strange as you read the letter. You're you're reading through Romans 8 and there's rejoicing everywhere. and, And you hit this mountaintop of amazing glory at the end of Romans 8. And then suddenly, Paul is feeling great sorrow. What's the deal? How do we explain this? Well, there are two things I need to say about the transition from Romans 8 to Romans 9. Remember, by the way, that your chapter numbers and your verse numbers were added long after Paul wrote this. So it's not as if Paul finished Romans chapter 8 and said, I'm done with that chapter. Now I'm going to start an entirely new chapter. That's not how it went. Rather, he's writing one letter on one scroll in which paragraph is linked to paragraph, and each thing flows from what was said before it. So how do we make sense of how he goes from the glory of the end of Romans 8 to sorrow and anguish, the beginning of Romans 9? Well, first, let's remember that in the Christian life, experiencing both joy and sorrow at the same time is normal. In the Christian life, experiencing joy and sorrow at the same time is normal. What Paul expresses in Romans 8 and now in Romans 9 
should be something that all of us in this room who know Jesus can relate to. We know the joy in ourselves of being loved by Jesus Christ. And we know the sorrow of recognizing others around us who do not know that love. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, Paul described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that a fit description of the Christian life? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're sorrowful over our sin. We're sorrowful over tragedies that come into our lives. We're sorrowful over injustice and immorality in the world around us. Maybe we're sorrowful at the direction we see our nation taking. Certainly we're sorrowful because we look around and we see people we love walking a path to hell. We may be sorrowful even because people we have loved in this life have already died outside of Christ. And we know that they're experiencing something of the judgment of God. There is real sorrow in the Christian life. And yet at the same time, there is real joy. There's joy in the gospel. Joy that our sins have been forgiven. Joy that that our Father has adopted us. Joy in, in the unfathomable love of Christ for us. Joy that God's Spirit is dwelling within us. Joy in the promises of God and knowing that heaven awaits for us and that Jesus is coming to get us. There's joy when we see people saved. Joy as we see people grow in Christ. Joy as we see evidences of God's grace in one another's lives. There's joy in our relationships here in this church and in the love that we have for one another because of Christ this is the Christian life in this world sorrow and joy together we're complex people aren't we we experience both Romans 8 yes Romans 9 yeah the second thing to say is that we need to make sure we see the connection between these two chapters And the connection is this. The whole of Romans 8 dealt with the issue of assurance. Romans 8 was all about how do we, who are Christians, rest peacefully knowing that we are safe and secure in the hands of God. And we saw that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. We, we saw the great golden chain of Romans 8, 29, and 30 that, that all who are justified are also glorified, that no true Christian can lose their salvation, that nothing can possibly separate us from the love of God. And Paul mentions that whole list of things that could possibly rip us away from God's mighty hands, and he says none of them, nothing can overcome the will of your Father. He has chosen to make you his own. You are his forever, dear Christian. You have grounds for assurance in the sovereign will of your God. Which is wonderful. But wait a minute. What if God's will can be broken? What if it's possible that things don't always go the way God says they will? After all, didn't God promise through his prophets a day when all of Israel would return to him? Didn't God speak of a day in the Old Testament when Israel's Messiah would come and a great kingdom would be established and all Israel would prosper and flourish once more? And now the Messiah has come and the opposite has happened. 
the Jews have not flocked to their Messiah. They've flogged their Messiah. They've rejected their Messiah. They didn't just reject him. They mocked him. They beat him. They crucified him. And now after the resurrection, Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus' name. But the Jews, by and large, are not. So if my assurance, if my peace, if my security is resting on God's word being true and nothing usurping his will, don't I have a problem? Because it sure looks like something went wrong with God's word. And it sure looks like something went wrong with God's will. As far as Israel is concerned. And if something can go wrong there. Maybe something can go wrong with me. And I'm not as safe as I thought I was. That's the, Paul, that's the issue that Paul has to deal with. In Romans 9. And he, he knows he has to deal with it. It's, it's staring everybody in the face. Um. We're here at Mount Hermon 2,000 years after Paul writes this letter. This history doesn't shock us at all. But these first century believers, they were shocked. They were stunned. Why are the Jews not believing in their own Messiah? Why is Jesus being accepted by all of these pagan people? But the very people from which he came... The very people who had the promises, they're not believing. Here is the number one objection to Paul's gospel. Here is the number one objection to why Jesus cannot be the true Messiah, why we must have to wait for another one. Jesus can't be the Messiah. The great salvation that Paul has taught from Romans 1 to Romans 8, it sounds nice, it sounds wonderful, but maybe it's just one big balloon and this issue of Israel not believing in Jesus is the pin that makes the balloon pop. If he's really the Messiah and what you're saying is true, didn't God promise that all Israel would be saved? And they're doing the opposite. What are you going to say about that, Paul? And that's why Romans 9 exists. To answer and to explain this huge issue. And along the way, God teaches us some of the most important truths of who he is and how he works in the world. Now, in these first five verses, Paul opens up to us about his own sorrow on account of these unbelieving Jews. Paul is full of anguish because of these people who are lost. Sometimes I think we forget that Paul was a missionary. Maybe we're too quick to think of Paul as a theologian, Paul as a teacher, Paul as a thinker, Paul as a scholar. Paul didn't spend his days in a classroom or even in a pastor's office. Paul spent his days going from city to city preaching the gospel, pleading with people to believe. Paul was an evangelist. And Paul's great concern was for the lost, that the lost would be saved. Mount Hermon, do we have a heart full of love for the lost? Are we willing to do almost anything to see people come to know our Savior? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, everything I do, the decisions I make, the choices that I work with, I'm doing it all for this purpose, that I might win some to Christ. He says, I'm living in the blessings of the gospel, but I want to share it. I want to share with others in the blessings of the gospel. This was the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. What can I do that God through me might bring others to salvation? And Paul was willing to give up every right he had if it would bring somebody to Christ. How much was Paul willing to endure that the gospel would be proclaimed to the lost? He says, 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rocks. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I'm on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was how Paul lived. And why would he choose to live that way? He didn't have to. Why did he choose to live that way? Others might come to know the Savior he had come to know. His was a life given to the salvation of the lost. Where did Paul get this heart for lost people? He got it from Jesus himself. Christ is our ultimate example of one who weeps over the lost. He has compassion for them. Matthew 9, 35-38, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Paul's missionary heart was just a reflection of the heart of Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Where are we Emotionally, when it comes to the lost around us? Are we hardened towards them? Do we care little for the lost around us? Or do we weep and do we mourn because there are so many who are so far away from Christ? People are slipping away into eternal damnation. And the church of Jesus Christ has no tears. In Philippians 3.18, Paul said, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Paul says, I am speaking to you through my tears about people who are enemies of the cross. Why tears? The next verse. Their end is destruction. Here's why I'm talking through tears. These people that we're talking about, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. We have the true God, the glorious God, and so many people are walking around serving their belly. Their glory is their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. When Paul considers the condition of the lost, he weeps. He weeps over their final destiny in hell. He weeps over the way they're living in the present. The way they're swimming in the muck and rejoicing in evil. David said, Psalm 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. When was the last time that you experienced anything close to shedding a tear because you look around and you see people transgressing the law of God, living in sin? Here is double sorrow. Sorrow for the fate of the lost and sorrow because of how they bring dishonor to your God. Does it break your heart to think of the hell to which people are headed? And does it break your heart to think of the sins that they are living in now, for which they will have to pay for in eternal ages to come? We think about Jesus, and he looks out over Jerusalem, and what does he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Dear friends, it is those who know most what it is to weep for the lost, who know most what it is to win the lost. There will not be any winning if there is no weeping. Where is the brokenheartedness? Where is the sorrow and the anguish amongst God's people for those who are headed to hell? Would it help if we could see their future misery now? Would it help if the lost were walking around crying out in the pain and the agony of hell now so that we could see their condition, so that we could have compassion on them? Would that help? If you saw that someone's house was on fire and that they were inside, would you not do everything you could to warn them to get out of the house? If you saw them standing in the street and the car is barreling down upon them, would you not cry out for them to move? Where is our concern for everlasting souls? Have you ever watched someone in incredible pain realizing there was nothing you could do to help them? Maybe at the scene of an automobile accident, you're waiting with the injured person waiting for the ambulance to arrive, and the person is crying out in pain, and you're all out of options. There's nothing else you can do. And you just watch the person, and you just watch them hurt, and you're wishing, I wish I could do something more. 
Well, friends, we live in a world of people who are blind and confused and morally upside down and they're reaping the consequences of their actions and they're hurting inwardly and they're longing for a peace that will last. Their hearts have been ripped to shreds from so many short-term relationships and the, the hookup culture in which we live. They're empty inside. They're living for trivial and temporary things that just can't be satisfied more than anything. They long to know the security of the love that we have as Christians in God. And ahead of them is the day of judgment. Ahead of them is eternal punishment. And you and I do not have to sit silently by wishing we could do something. We have the gospel they need. We are equipped. We don't have to sit and wait for the preacher to come. We don't have to sit and hope, well, I sure hope God brings somebody to to care for that person. We can do it. We have the gospel. They so desperately need. We have a moral obligation as fellow human beings to help others know the sweet salvation that we have come to know. Yes, we need more of Paul's theological mind. We need more of Paul's passion for doctrine, more of Paul's passion for truth. But we also need more of Paul's missionary heart. We need to know what it is to have this kind of love for lost people. Dear friend, do you have it? You'll notice in this passage that Paul is thinking particularly of his own people, his kin, his His fellow Jews will speak more tonight about the sorrow of lost loved ones within our own families. We'll talk more tonight about why Paul insists so strongly on his sincerity in verse 1 and why he makes the astounding statement that he makes in verse 3. But I want to close this morning by noting particularly what it was that caused Paul such sorrow and such anguish. So look at verse 3. Verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. In other words, here is the condition of his fellow Jews that causes him such sorrow. They are accursed and they are cut off from Christ. Paul says he wished that he could trade places with them, that they might be saved, but he can't do that. Here is their situation. They are accursed, and they are cut off from Christ. They are accursed. The Greek word is anathema. It means to be damned. It means to be consigned by God's holy justice to an eternity of suffering. Why should we weep for the lost around us? Because their sins stack up against them. And on the last day, God will issue the only pronouncement that righteousness will allow, and they must pay the price. Sins against an infinitely good and holy God demand an infinite punishment, an eternal punishment. This is what we deserve. Though many of us have found mercy in Christ. Friends, remember how Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that man pleaded for an angel to be sent to his five brothers to warn them lest they too end up in hell. We're told that the man was in torment, that he he cried out for even a drop of cool water to relieve his suffering. 
And when he was told that that was impossible, he begged that his brothers might be warned, that his brothers might be spared the misery that he is in. Paul goes further. He isn't just sorrowful because these people are going to hell. He's sorrowful because they're cut off from Christ. In other words, it isn't just the terrible destiny ahead of these people that brings Paul anguish. It's the fact that they could have so much. That they could know Christ. That they could have Christ and they don't have him. Remember, Paul always went to the synagogues first. And every town he went to, to preach the gospel. He took his message to the Jews first in every village. And almost in in every single town, the Jews would reject Christ. They would reject the message of the gospel. They would reject the salvation being offered to them. And this broke Paul's heart. Because these people just didn't know how sweet was the salvation that they were rejecting. Paul said that to know Christ is better than anything else in this world. Is that your testimony, Christian? Can you say with Paul that you count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Can you say as David did that God has put more joy in your heart than the people of this world have when their grain and wine abound? Can you say, as, as, as it said in the Song of Solomon, that your Lord Jesus is the fairest of 10,000, that he's altogether lovely? If you've come to know the riches of being loved by Jesus, if you've come to know the goodness of being adopted by the Father, if you've come to know the goodness of having the Spirit of God shed the love of the Father for you in your heart, how can you not grieve that so many people around you refuse this? When people scoff and mock what is true and what is good and what is wonderful, don't we just want to cry out, if only you knew, if only you knew what you're rejecting. The application this morning is very simple. First, will we repent before God for being hard-hearted towards the lost around us? Will we acknowledge this morning that something has not been right in our soul because we have been living with the kind of sorrow we have not been living with the kind of sorrow and anguish that Paul speaks about here and which Jesus Christ exemplified in his life? Will you ask God to give you a heart of greater tenderness and greater compassion and greater grief for the lost? Even in your own joy, even as you live in the joy of knowing Christ, will you pray that God will give you a greater heart of tenderness and a heart of sorrow, longing that the people around you would be saved? Second, will you act upon your repentance by seeking to be more mindful of the lost around you? Will you look upon them not just with the eyes in your head, but with the eyes of faith and see their true condition? When you see that person working the cash register at Aldi, will you see them not just as another person, but as a never-dying soul with a future before them of either eternal joy or eternal punishment? 
Will we act upon our repentance by looking for every opportunity to commend Christ to lost people? It it may be nothing more than saying, you know, I read this verse in my Bible this morning and it meant a lot to me. Let me share it with you. It may be nothing more than pointing somebody to to a church service or to a sermon online. But I pray that God will give you opportunities even greater than that. Opportunities to speak longer and in more depth about how Jesus Christ has changed your life. Will you act upon your repentance not just by grieving more, but by speaking more? Mount Hermon, let us throw out more ropes to drowning people, praying that more and more of them will grab those ropes and come to safety. They cannot grab the rope if we don't throw it to them. And friends, I've thrown out a rope this morning, and there are some in here who need to grab it because there are some in this room who are lost and on their way to hell. I would guess there are some in here who have not yet chosen to trust Christ as their Savior and to give their lives to Him. Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The Bible knows nothing of secret Christians. There are people in here that need to come out of the closet. And say, I am a believer. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not continue to play games in your mind saying, I'll follow Jesus later. I can can take care of this tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. And eternity is a very, very long time. Don't play games with your eternity. Jesus is calling us right now through this message to be saved. Will you humble yourself like a little child? Will you accept the forgiveness of sins that only Jesus Christ is able to give? Will you become a follower of Jesus? I pray that you will if you haven't. And I pray that those who have will be more earnest and urgent in sharing Jesus with others. Let us know sorrow and anguish for the loss even as we rejoice in the gospel. Amen? Amen.